And this week we're dealing with the second sign miracle in this chapter, which is the fifth sign miracle that John points out in his gospel. Okay? Not only that, we get into some very deep theological truth after this chapter or after this section of John 6. I would venture to guess that the very, uh, from verse 22 to the end of the chapter in John 6, has some of the most deeply rooted theological points that we are going to talk about, okay? There's election, there's predestination, there's the calling of God, there's people coming to faith in Christ, there's those who believe, those, there's those who don't believe because they're not of his sheepfold. I mean, this is a, a, a section of this book of John that's going to be very, very deep theological waters. So, I'm giving you fair warning that we did all 15 verses last week and we're doing... Uh, this whole section of what six seven verses next week and the week after that and the week after that the rest of chapter six may go a little slower because there's a lot of stuff to unpack it's kind of like john one we spent 11 weeks on john well, on just the prologue right we spent 11 weeks on just the prologue because john is giving you what he has now come to understand about jesus christ amen and he's given you these miracle signs to show you what made him understand these things. Amen? Why does he know that he knows that Jesus is the bread of life? Because he was there when Jesus broke bread. Last week we talked about it. He took the five loaves and the two fishes and fed over 5,000 men. And that's not even counting the women and children that were there. And this week we have the... The next sign miracle. Yeah, I probably ought to do that. Thank you. But before we do any of that, i got to pray over the offering and dismiss Children's Church because I'll get ahead of myself, okay? So, children, 10 and under, you are dismissed to Children's Church, and I apologize for getting ahead of myself. Uh, and Kyle, would you pray over the offering? Amen. Now, you know, you got to forgive pastors sometimes. They spend all week working on something, and they're just ready to preach it, okay? So I was just ready to preach this, okay? Because this is an awesome, awesome sign that we're going to be reading about. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to tell you just a little background about the other five signs that we've talked about. Just a reminder. Uh, remember in John 2... Verse 1 through 12, the first sign was 
Jesus turned water into wine, right? This is in the book of John. We're talking exclusively the signs in the book of John. The second sign in the book of John was the healing of the official's son in chapter 4, verse 46 through 54. The third sign was the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5, verse 1 through 16. And like I said, the second or the next two are in this chapter, at the beginning of this chapter. Last week we talked about the fourth sign, which is in John 6, verses 1 through 15, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. And John says this is a sign. Amen? And now we deal with the fifth sign in John, in the book of John, and there's second sign in this chapter and John 6, 16 through 21, we're going to be dealing with Jesus walking on the water. Uh, before we read this, I want to remind you that this miracle should not be confused with the miracle of Jesus when he was asleep in the boat and woke up and calmed the storm. It's a totally different incident. Though that, that miracle is recorded in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 through 33. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 52. That miracle and this miracle are two separate incidents. Amen? Um, oh, excuse me. That's not where that one's found. The, the, one for, the one for Jesus sleeping in the boat is Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 through 27. Mark chapter 4, verse 36 through 31, and Luke 8, 22 through 25. I gave you the wrong one there. The one that I gave you first was the other books of the Bible that this miracle, Jesus walking on the water, is recorded in Matthew 14 and Mark 6. Okay? Jesus walking on the water is recorded in three books, and Jesus calming the storm is found in three books. Okay, and not always the same three books. This one is found in John, Matthew, and Mark. Jesus sleeping and calming the storm is found in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. John does not give an account of the calming of the storm. He only gives the account of Jesus walking on the water. So, without any further ado, let's read from John 6, 16 to verse 21 and I will read out of the ESV verse 16 when evening came his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But when he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid, then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now this... This incident that we're just reading about is recorded in two other Gospels. So what I want to do is I want to turn to Matthew chapter 14, okay? Because it's important, especially when a, 
a event is given in more than one book, the same event, it's good to have the whole story, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to do, uh, we're going to read all three of these and get the entire story, okay? What was that guy that used to tell us the rest of the story? What was his name? Lee Paul Harvey. Yeah, Lee Harvey Oswald was the guy that shot President Kennedy, okay? <laughs> uh, Paul Harvey, we're going to have the rest of the story, amen? Uh, John, or Matthew chapter 14, starting at verse uh, 13. Or no, 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 no. Where'd it go? 22, that's right. Sorry, I lost my place. Okay, immediately... He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him. Now, here's a detail that John doesn't give you, right? This is, a G, this is a detail that John doesn't give you. In John, it just says they simply got into the boat to go to the other side. It doesn't tell you why they got in the boat, right? So here we're going to get more details about this event. So let's read. Immediately he made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up into a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening was come, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, see, they give you a time frame here, the fourth watch of the night. This is a time frame of when it was, okay? Uh, and in the fourth watch of the night, they came to him walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And then Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And it beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So now we're going to go to Mark chapter 6. And we're going to read the same event. There's a purpose behind doing this, and I know it takes a little time, and you feel like you're reading the same thing over again, and you are, but you're gaining details that otherwise, by just reading John, will be lost on you, okay? So, we're going to be in John chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into a boat and go before him onto the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd and after he had taken leave unto them he went up on the mountain to pray and when evening was come the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on land and he saw that they were making headway painfully 
for the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. Hmm. 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 Some information here, right? Let's keep reading. That's Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 52. <clears throat> and he meant to pass them by, verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Woo, there's a lot of things here, right? Lots of things in this one. Amen. Was you holding your hand up? Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, uh, now, Mike, I want you to do me a favor and look up Mark chapter 45, or Mark chapter 6, verse 45 in your Bible right there. Do you got your study Bible? Okay, what, is there a note for verse 45? Right, right. So we're going to start this. We're going to turn back to John 5, or John 6, excuse me. We're going to turn back to John 6, and we're going to start right here, okay? Now that we've read the whole story, now that we've got a little bit of detail here, we're going to read this. Huh? Yeah, you got to talk louder. Read, read it again, but read it louder. Right, right. In John 6, verse 14 and 15, it indicates that the people were thronging him and they sought to take him and make him king, right? And it was not time for that because he had not yet gone to the cross, right? So there's a time frame that Jesus is working on, amen? And he can't let anything get in the way of what God had planned, amen? God's plan is to save all those who believe. Amen. So in doing so, Jesus can't allow them to get ahead of the program. Okay. And that's a good lesson for us that we don't get ahead of God's program. Amen. Even in this church. I know we all want the church to grow. I know we all want the church to do this and do that thing. And we got plans for that side of the building. But the reality is we need to stay within what God is doing in us right now. Amen. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not where I was. And apparently, the disciples had missed the whole point of the loaves and the fish. 
You want to you wanna know why Jesus is rushing them off? He's, he knows the hardness of their heart. He knew that they didn't get what just happened to them with the loaves and the fish. So he was going to show himself and demonstrate himself in a whole another way so that when they saw him do this miracle, according to Matthew, they said, Thou art the Son of God. Amen? Now they're starting to understand who it is this rabbi from Nazareth really is. Amen? So we're going to start here uh, at verse 16 and 17. According to Matthew and Mark, Jesus constrains or he makes the disciples get into the boat to go to the other side. Now, they tell you that Jesus makes them go to the other side, but they don't tell you why Jesus makes them go to the other side. John gives you that information in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 6. He says, hey, they're trying to make him king, so he knew he had to separate himself and go away, right? So he sends the disciples off. Now we must understand that Jesus had another plan with sending them away, right? Not only was Jesus trying to get away from the crowd, but Jesus fully intended for them to see the demonstration of his power over the elements. Amen? Now, just a quick, another quick note. He sends them to the other side. Now, it's interesting that, uh, what does, where does Matthew, the, Matthew doesn't tell us where he's sending them, does he? Let's go back and look at Matthew 14. Huh? Well, John says Capernaum for sure. I'm not sure if Matthew does or not, okay? I'm just going back to look real quick. Yeah, yeah, it just says the other side. And, and Mark says Bethsaida. So the possibility here is that they were going to stop off to pick Jesus up and then go to Capernaum, okay? This tells me, number one, that John knew their ultimate destination was Capernaum. And when Mark was writing, he was giving you the, that they were, had a plan to stop and probably pick Jesus up in Bethsaida and then head to Capernaum, okay? The realities of that is that's why John could say this was before Jesus had joined them. Now what he says here in just a, the next verse, right? But let's deal with this one verse at a time. Verse 16, he said, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Now we have the background information of why they left, right? Number one, the crowd was thronging Jesus and wanting to make him king. And number two, Jesus was sending them away so that he could demonstrate who he was to them, right? And we know by the end of, of Mark that it was because their hearts had not received what happened with the five loaves, or the 5,000 loaves, yeah, the five loaves and the two fish, excuse me. Uh, so they're headed to Capernaum. Jesus, it says in verse 17, was not yet come to them, okay? Look at verse 17. They got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Okay, so when it started, I want you to understand, verse 16, evening came, they got into the boat. 
right? And then uh, some time passes here because now it's not just evening, it's dark. How many of y'all know it can be evening and still daylight outside, right? Okay, so it was evening when they got into the boat and they started across the sea. Now it's dark. And he makes a point to tell you that Jesus had not yet come to them. Okay, now this point could be the fact that they may have had a plan to stop and pick him up, right? It could point to the fact that they were planning on stopping over in Bethsaida, picking Jesus up, and then going to Capernaum. Or it could be John writing in the past tense because he's already, you, you got to realize John's writing his gospel some 40 or 50 years after the resurrection of Christ when he's an old man, right? So he's writing all this down and he's saying this is before Jesus came walking to us on the water, okay? So he's trying to give you a, a, a hint that he's a firsthand information here. This is before Jesus met them. Now, me personally, I think it's probably that they had a plan to go pick him up. But I'm not dismissing the fact that John could be giving us information from hindsight, okay? Um, Jesus was not yet come to them may mean that they expected to meet Jesus along the way on the shore at some point. Or it could hint that Jesus is a, a author, or John, this could hint to John's authorship as he is writing from a memory or remembering or in a past tense, as he dictates this narrative, he states that this was before Jesus came walking on the water. Now we get to verse 18. Look at verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, I don't know about you. Sometimes I just like the way the King James says it, okay? So I'm going to read you out of the King James what it says right here, okay? This verse in verse in King James says, And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. Now I want you to understand a couple things about this wind and about this opposition. And many church fathers over the years when they preach this message talk about the opposition. The wind of opposition that is always against God's people. Amen? And that's a very valid sermon point. Amen? Because when you serve Christ, it's not fat naked angel babies on clouds with harps. It's hard because people don't understand why you don't do the things you used to do anymore. Why you don't talk the way you used to talk anymore. Why you won't go and enjoy the sin that you used to enjoy anymore. Amen? Because... God calls you out of darkness and into light, and then you are not supposed to live like you did when you were in darkness. And it creates a barrier. It creates tension between you and the world because you're different now. This is the difference that has, has to take place in a Christian's life. The born-again experience does not happen outside of the change of heart. Period. End of story. God never once calls, elects, saves, redeems anybody, and there's no change at all. That does not happen. That is not 
biblical Christianity ever. Amen? I know that's hard preaching. We want Joel Osteen and everybody's great and wonderful and fluffy and just here's how you have seven points to have a happy life. If all you seek is happiness in this life, you're missing the whole point of the gospel. Because the gospel ain't about happiness now. It's about happiness for eternity. Jesus said, take no thought of those who can kill your body, but take thought of him who can, after your body's dead, throw your soul into hell. Amen? Because he can kill your spirit as well. The, there arose a great wind. It became rough by reason of this great wind. This wind began to blow. The wind in Mark and Matthew, it says that the wind was contrary to them. Okay? Now, I'm sorry to tell you this, but the Christian life is a life full of the winds of this world being contrary to you. It is a life filled with the world being against you. That's the whole point. If you can go to your church and stay in your sin and never be convicted to change, that church is not preaching the Christian life. They are not preaching the gospel. They're not preaching what Jesus preached because Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. They hated me. They will hate you. But be of good cheer. Woo! We need that kind of gospel. Amen? A gospel that isn't afraid of the storm. A gospel that isn't trying to circumvent the storm. One that's not trying to go around it or just fly above it. But a gospel that creates Christians that don't care. Come hell or high water. Come Come sunshine or rain, come good days or bad days, I will glorify God all the time. That's the kind of faith we need. We don't need this mealy mouth faith that only loves God when things are going good. We don't need this mealy mouth faith that only trusts God when things are being done for me. Amen? Why the church ain't full here? Because we won't preach that kind of gospel. But there's a day coming. There's a day coming when the people of this town, after they hear the gospel long enough, are going to start going, I'm tired of this superficial Christianity that actually doesn't produce any change, that actually doesn't convict me of sin, that actually doesn't hold me accountable, that won't confront me. When I'm done with all that, I'm going to get back to the God of the Bible. I'm going to get back to real saving faith that produces fruit and change. Amen? And God's calling people out of darkness and into light. Calling them out of these false Christianity sects that only promote God's goodness and never talk that God is going to judge all mankind one day. Oh, oh, we can't. You know, we just, we, you know, we can't tell them that God hates sin. You better tell people God hates sin. You better tell them God doesn't throw sin into hell. He throws sinners into hell. 
the realities that the wind is contrary to us should be a point of rejoicing. Mark tells us that they were toiling while they rode. They were toiling while they rode against the wind. How many of y'all ever felt like you were just rowing against the wind? Let me tell you something. Being a pastor in a small town in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, where everybody don't, where everybody in town hates God, doesn't want anything to do with God, in a town like that, I feel Peter and John and James, I feel them rowing up these contrary winds. We're just in the boat and we're rowing and we're rowing and we're rowing. And Jesus saw them rowing. Remember it says he saw them making headway painfully. Do you know what that means? To make headway painfully. It means that they were rowing their little tails off. Ah, they were just rowing as hard as they can. And they were going that far. That far at a time. Just rowing and rowing and rowing. Any other day with no wind against them, any other day when it was just calm and they were rowing, they would have been making good time. But because the wind was contrary and the waves were up, when they were rowing, it was just like they were setting still. Today we call that just spinning our wheels. Sometimes we just got to trust God when we're just spinning our wheels. <laughs> Amen. They were making painful headway, going slow. Verse 19 tells us, look at this, verse 19. When they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now here John tells us that they were frightened, but he doesn't give us a reason why they were frightened, right? Mark and Matthew give us the reason. First they thought he was a ghost. Right? And in, in, in Matthew, you see Peter get out of the boat when he says, it's, it's me. And he says, if it's really you, tell me to get out of the boat. And Peter gets out of the boat and he walks a little while. But then he looks at the wind and the waves and he gets afraid and starts sinking. Mark tells us wholeheartedly that Jesus was going to pass them by. His intention wasn't even to get in the boat. Why? Because if he'd have just came and got in the boat, then Peter wouldn't have been able to have his faith tested. Because if he'd have just got in the boat without doing the things that he did, looking like he was going to go by them, they, they may not have been compelled to say, Lord, get in the boat with us. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't go very far. They were making slow headway. They were only about halfway across. It's five or six miles to their destination, and they rode about three and a half miles. They were about midway. Huh. They rode hard against the wind for three or four miles about halfway to Capernaum 
And then it says they saw him walking on the water. Now, this doesn't mean anything to us most of the time, okay? We, we're, we're so... Uh, we're so earthly minded and we've heard the story so much that we take this idea very lightly that he's walking on the water. But I don't know if you've ever tried to walk on water, but you can't do it. And the very fact that these Hebrew men saw him walking on the water, to them it spoke about God in all the times in the Old Testament where it says that God is the, the master of the tempest, that he controls the weather, that he controls the sea. That's what they're seeing. They're seeing God walk on the water. Here we see Jesus demonstrating his power over the natural world. He's demonstrating and displaying his sovereignty over the world that he created. Jesus created all things, remember? John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by him, and nothing was made that was made without him. Hebrews chapter 1, that he is the one who sustains all things. Amen? They were made by the word of his power. Talking about Jesus. Jesus is here absolutely putting an exclamation point on his Godhood. That's why I made sure to mention when we read our question this morning, we read the answer that I expounded upon the fact if you're Theology denies the deity of Jesus Christ. You are following a false God. Because Jesus is God. And if he's not God to you, then he couldn't save you. In the Old Testament, God alone rules over the sea. You can find this in Psalm 29. Let's turn there. I want to turn there. Just to read a few of these psalms to you so that you can understand what these Hebrew men may have been thinking of when they saw Jesus walking on the water. Psalm 29, verse 10 and 11. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. And the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Flip over to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 9, I believe. Huh. You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Hmm. Psalm 107, verse 28, 29, and 30. Then I cried to the Lord. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea to hush. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. This very verse, when the disciples get to dry land, is, may very well be in the verse that they 
were thinking of when they got there. This echoes Job chapter 9. I want to go to Job 9. I want to read that. Job chapter 9 verse 8. That's not Job. There we go. It'll help me when I get there. Job 9, verse 8. But I want to actually read from verse 1 to verse 8. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be right before God? If one wishes to contend with him, one cannot answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? Who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger? Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun and it does not rise? And who seals up the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? God stands upon the waves of the sea, Job says. So when these men who are followers of Christ look out and see Jesus walking on the water, this is no small thing. This is something that is massively, profoundly affecting them because now when they know the scriptures and they remember the scriptures and they see Jesus walking on the water immediately their minds Mark said or Matthew says when they when Jesus finally gets in the boat they exclaimed truly you are the son of god wow they were afraid why were they afraid? Well, first of all, Matthew and Mark tell us they thought he was a ghost. Now, I don't know why they thought he was a ghost, okay? Or, or maybe he was too far away at first for them to see him clearly, so they didn't know who it was. I don't know about you, but when it's raining and it's dark, I probably think they would have a hard time seeing anything. Amen? <laughs> and flesh doesn't usually walk on water. You're right, Mike. I think another fact could be mentioned here. That these men who saw Jesus walking on the water, and when they realized who it was and they were afraid, it was because they were witnessing the very power of God being displayed in their very presence. You notice how John reacts in the book of Revelation when he goes to the throne room, he falls on his face. Isaiah, when he's met, Face it, it, when, when Isaiah gets this vision of God and, and, and he sees God, what does he say? Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live in a land of unclean people. The power and the presence of God is an awesome and mighty thing. 
And friends, I don't mean to bash anybody, but what passes for the presence of God in charismatic circles where they're jumping and laughing and thronging and feeling like they're in this euphoric state rolling around is not the presence of God. Because every single time someone's actually in the presence of God in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, they are flat on their face. They are flat on their face, afraid. They are humbled. They are lowly because they have come into the presence of the almighty king of the entire universe. And that is no small thing. What passes for the presence of God in many church services today is nothing more than an emotional frenzy that people get a euphoric feeling. Oh, feel God in here. But in all reality, if God truly showed up in that place, they would be just like those priests in the old temple when the Spirit of God came upon the temple in Solomon's day. No one could even go in there to do work. manufacturing false presences of God so that we can manipulate people's ideas and their hearts and their pocketbooks rather than preach the gospel and point to Christ. I'll get off that soapbox. Verse 20. It's very interesting. Jesus says, it is I. Don't be afraid. You ever notice every time God shows up in the Old Testament, he has to say that same thing too? <laughs> don't be afraid. He sends angels. And then, then when the angel shows up here, don't be afraid. I would have to conclude that Jesus walking on the water was a very awesome sight. It's terrifying to them. And he has to remind them, it's me. Don't be afraid. That's what I tell you too. God has made a way for all of us to come boldly before the throne of grace. We should not be afraid to go to God. But when we go to God, we must understand who it is we go to. It should fill us with awe and wonder and fear and, and, and love and joy. To go to the presence of God. Hebrews tells us that there's a new and living way that's been made by Jesus Christ. That we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Amen. I also want to allude to the fact, and most commentators do this as well, that Jesus reverses the ego in me. He reverses it and says, it's I instead of I am. He's alluding to an I am statement. I am is going to be a fundamental word and phrase throughout the rest of John's gospel. I am the way. I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. Amen? These are statements that Jesus is going to make over and over. In this case, it's reversed. Instead of I am, it's basically 
here I am, or it is me, amen? But it would fit that he would make an I am statement right here. Coming to them, walking on the water. Amen? This could harken back to uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God tells them that he is the I am. And the connection later becomes clear in the book of John, John 6, 35, John 6, 48, John 8, 24, John 8, 54. Jesus makes many more I am statements. Jesus is God. Amen. We have to understand this, okay? John 20 and 28, Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. Now, they wrote this in Greek. But more than likely, he spoke this in Aramaic or Hebrew. And if he said it in Hebrew, he would have said, Yahweh Elohim. That would have been the words that he used. Talking to Jesus. And in the Hebrew life, you would never ascribe the word Yahweh or Elohim to a man. And for John to say that of Jesus tells you that Jesus is God in the flesh. Which is exactly what Isaiah said would happen. Which is exactly what happens in Matthew when the angel comes and talks to Joseph and says, Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the thing that's going to be birthed in her is going to be called the Son of God. It's gonna be, he's going to be the Savior of the world. You're going to call his name Jesus. And Jesus, or Joshua, means God saves. Amen. And then he tells you that this is to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said, that the virgin shall be with child and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God. Jesus is a man, that's true. But Jesus was the God-man. He was both God and man. Inseparably God and man. Not two separate persons. One person, God and man. Lastly, and, and just a few more verses about Jesus being God. John 1, 1. Titus 2, 13. Where Paul tells Titus, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 Peter exclaims, he has made him both Lord and Messiah. Now what is this word Lord? That is Elohim. God. Every time in the Old Testament the word God is used, almost every time it is the name Elohim. Every time in the Old Testament the word Lord is used, it is the word Yahweh. So Jesus being spoken of by Peter, a Jew, two Jewish people, says he's made him both Elohim and Messiah. Amen. Verse 21. This, John does not give us enough here, okay? This is not enough for me in John's 
account of this because if you look it says and they were glad to take him into the boat I want to flip back over to Matthew okay go to Matthew 14 and I'm gonna close real quick here I'm sorry this took just a little while to explain some of this okay in Matthew he says no it's Mark my bad I can't help it. It's written in two different spots. If you can remember it all, good luck, okay? I've been preaching a long time and I've got it all memorized yet, okay? <laughs> no, I guess it is Matthew. Not Matthew. Uh, John says they were glad that he got in the boat, right? Why were they glad he got in the boat? Well, yeah, but number one, they were in a storm, right? Number two, they just saw him walk on water. They're like, all right, we're in the middle of this storm, and we've been rowing all night and gotten very little out of this rowing. And Jesus, here he comes walking on the water. Surely, if he can walk on the water, he'll be sa we'll be safe if he's in our boat. Amen? This has to be the implication. They're happy to welcome him into the boat because they just saw him walk on water. Amen? How many of you, if you're out in the middle of the uh, ocean in a sinking boat and the boat's sinking, then you see some guy walking on the water to you, you're going to be like, oh, man, get away from here. My boat's sinking. No! You're going to be like, get in here. Obviously, you got something I don't. You're walking on water, and I'm sinking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they saw Peter walk on the water and they saw just about how far his faith got him, okay? Because you see, a lot of people take Peter's example and say, oh, yeah, we can walk on water. Well, we could if it was within us to always keep our faith focused on Christ. But what that tells me is Peter, because he's human and because he's flawed, because he's. A man, there's no way he was going to keep his eyes on Jesus the whole time. There's no way. The necessity that he got out of the boat was the main thing. The step of faith to get out of the boat. But the step of faith didn't save him. Christ did. Amen? <laughs> now, we're going to close this. Matthew and Mark says they, they were astonished, right? Mark even says that Jesus was just going to go by them. Can you imagine Jesus' disciples in this boat rowing for hours, got nowhere hardly, and they see Jesus walking on the water, and, and he says, oh no, it's a ghost, and, then, and Jesus says, no, it's me, and keeps walking. He didn't walk right to the boat. He just kept walking. Number one, Peter had to get out of the boat, right? We know that part. But why else would he keep walking? God is always trying to elicit a response from you, okay? Jesus wants you to want him in the boat, okay? Now, that doesn't mean you're going to want to all by yourself. 
But there is a response that God is always trying to elicit from men, okay? Or else we can take the whole story of last week where Jesus te tested Philip and we can throw it out of the Bible. Either God tests us to elicit a response for us to believe or he doesn't. And this is exactly what's going on. He's trying to elicit a response of the heart of these men to believe what they're seeing. What they're seeing him do. Amen? To place their faith in him. They welcome him into the boat. They were astonished at this revelation of who Jesus was. Another miracle happens at the very end of this. Look at what it says. Now, mind you, when Jesus shows up, they're halfway across, right? Remember that? They've rowed for about three and a half miles. But when Jesus gets in the boat, immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. It says immediately. How do I go another three and a half miles immediately? Well, I can't. You can't. But the man who walks on water can. This also kind of leads us back to Psalm 107 where it brings them back to safe harbor. Amen. So in closing, I want to give you a quote here from Cyril of Alexandria. And most of you are going to go, who? Cyril of Alexandria was a bishop of Alexandria in 412 A.D. Okay? And this is what he wrote concerning this portion of John. The deep darkness of the night troubles them, hovering like smoke on raging waves and taking away any ability for navigation. The fierce winds uh, riding on the waves with a rushing sound that raises the billows high above their heads had to trouble them more than a little bit. Yes, and through all of this, John records, Jesus was not yet with them. This was the real danger and Christ's absence from their voyage was making their, their fear grow more and more. Those who are not with Jesus are in a fierce tempest of a storm. They are cut off from him or at least seem to be absent from him because they have departed from his holy laws. Because of their sin, they are separated from the one who is able to save them. If then it is overwhelming to be in such spiritual darkness, if it is oppressive to be swamped by the bitter sea of pleasures, let us then receive Jesus. For this is what will deliver us from dangers and from death to sin. 
you understand what Cyril is talking about here? He's talking about how we live our life outside of Christ. When Christ is not in our boat, we are in mortal danger of hellfire. And he's telling you, just like he, just like those men were sitting in that boat, they welcomed Jesus into the boat. They welcomed him. They were glad when, when he was coming near and they welcomed him into the boat. Every sinner who is a, apart from Christ, every sinner who does not believe and is caught in the tempt, the tempt, uh, excuse me, the tempt, the tempest of this world, the tempest of sin, the tempest of our life, a life outside of Christ. If you're stuck in that tempest, Cyril is telling you, you had better welcome Christ into your boat. Because he's the only answer. He's the only way. And there is no other. Peter said it this way. That God has made this Jesus both Elohim and Mashiach. That anyone who believes in him. All should call on the name of the Lord. The desire is that you should have Christ in your boat. Paul says it like this. When he prayed for the uh, Philippians, I believe it was. He said, I pray that Christ would dwell in your heart richly. Why? Because he stands at the door and knocks. Because he calls and those who hear, those who believe, will be saved. My question today is, do you see him? Do you hear the voice of the good shepherd? Do you see the hand of God? Do you feel the spirit of God urging you? Compelling you to believe. You see, these men that were in this boat were men and women just like me and you who walk normal everyday lives, who don't see spectacular things all the time, but these men saw Jesus walking on the water. And in no way is this a little thing to these men it was a very revelation that God was in their midst. And this same God came and gave his life on the cross of Calvary to pay the sin debt for all who would believe. And my question today is do you believe? If you do, rejoice. Be exceedingly glad. But if you don't, I urge you, I compel you like Cyril of Alexandria. Invite Christ into your boat. Come to him. Call on him. What did Peter say to be saved? Lord, save me. That's all he said. That's all any sinner needs say. Stuck in the, temp the tempest of the world. The tempest of sin. That's all any sinner needs say. Lord, save me.
Let's pray. Father God, we give you glory and honor for this message today, God, where we see Jesus not just as the simple carpenter from Nazareth, not just as the simple rabbi from a small town of Capernaum, Lord. Not just as a 33-year-old Jewish man who came to preach and teach and baptize in the name and for the kingdom of heaven. But we see him as he is. The Lord of heaven and earth. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The bright and the morning star. The root and the descendant of David. Yet the creator of all things who stands at the portal and compels men everywhere to come unto him for the water of life. And this morning, God, we have given ear to your word. We've given voice to the gospel. And God, we ask that if there's anyone here that didn't believe in you, that that, that didn't know you, God, that before they walk out of this room, that they would know you. And God, if there's anyone that is watching on Facebook or listens to this podcast, God, that if they don't know you, they would hear this message and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Lord, we know that you have told us in your word that if we believe in our heart, and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead. We will be saved. Because all who call upon the name of the Lord. Shall be saved. And Lord I pray that there would be those today. That would call upon you. That they would be saved. God we ask that you would bless the food and the fellowship that we're about to partake of. That you would help us, Lord, love each other, pray for one another, lift one another up when we are dirt down and burdened, when we are stricken with grief and sorrow. God, we know that you are the friend that sticks closer than a brother. And it is you and only you that give peace that surpasses all understanding, that can guard the heart and the mind of the believer until you come. We ask for that peace. We ask for that in our fellowship that it would glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.